0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Todd Waterbury about how technology is changing consumption And about how smartphones have raised our expectations for how companies should interact with us. It's not enough to just let people know what you stand for. Like life, you actually only get credit for what you do, not what you say. Here's Debbie Millman.
1: In a land of big box stores, Target stands out. Maybe it's the relentless red of everything from the color of its stores to its website and bullseye logo. Or maybe it's the value the company places in design, not only in its own branding, but in many of its product lines. Since 2013, Todd Waterbury has been Target's chief creative officer, which means that what he and his team of art directors and designers create is experienced by millions of people every day. Before Target, Todd ran his own consulting company, working with clients like Uniqlo and Twitter. And for many years, he worked at the powerhouse agency Wyden and Kennedy. He joins me today to talk about his career and his take on designing for the masses. Todd Waterbury, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Debbie, thank you. This is a pleasure.
1: I understand that your one bedroom apartment in Manhattan is outfitted entirely in black, gray, and white. And your dining chairs are not arranged around your dining table like most people. Rather, they are in neat stacks on either side of a painting of stacked words. The New York Times called it all perfect. Have you always been so specific about your surroundings, Todd Waterbury?
0: I have been. This is the first time, though, that I was able to take advantage of it in terms of creating a space that really reflected the idea of a relationship between art, furniture, and a mood. And really thinking about how do I want the space to function? How do I want it to feel? And take advantage of the fact that in certain rooms, there's a very expected behavior in the case of the dining room. Chairs around a table. Chairs around a table. I actually bought these wonderful chairs 15 years ago in Tribeca, Uh, they're made in 1920 and uh, made in Switzerland and they're actually designed to be stacked and I just love the efficiency of that and there's just something so sculptural about them when I was moving into the apartment the movers actually brought them in stacked because that's the way they had been wrapped and this is one of the moments that I always pay attention to which is to be open to really receive what's in front of you and begin to see it with another perspective and that moment When I saw them stacked, I thought, I love that. I love that idea. That can be something I'm going to work with. So I've always admired that perspective to actually see something and respond to it.
1: The Times went on to state that you answer to an aesthetic dog whistle that few can hear and go on to declare, Todd Waterbury is a design perfectionist, a curious breed that outfits its habitat, not according to style or fashion, but to a set of fastidious inner rules that are usually minimalist in nature. So Todd, would you say that's true? And if so, what are those inner rules? Can you share any of those with us?
0: Well, one of the things I would say about that idea of the inner rule is that when you walk up to the bookshelves, so there are shelves with books that are neatly arranged, but when you come to understand is they're not arranged for aesthetics. They're actually arranged based on subject and content. So there are collections of books which are monographs. There are other collections of books that are about mid-century photography. There are other books that are stacked in relation to architecture so for me, it's just a very simple way to organize them. But for a lot of people, at first glance, they seem to be chosen for the fact that they're in a particular palette.
1: The spines are only yes. in white, black, and gray, Todd. What happens if you find a book that you want to buy with a <laughs> red spine? Please, let's discuss. I have a
0: whole other set of books in another part of the apartment that are for <sighs> okay. books that, in one way or another, are not part of the living room aesthetic. Okay, um, The reason that that came to be similar was moving into the apartment, having the shelves built, having them painted, and starting to pull the books out of the box, filling the bookshelves as I had always done, which is stacking them vertically on the shelf. And as I was pulling them out, I was literally just pulling them out in stacks and putting them side by side by side quickly to just get them out of the boxes. And another one of those moments occurred where I saw a collection that I'd pulled out, and they just so happened to be a collection of gray, black, and white for the most part. And I just looked at them for a moment and thought, it kind of matches the palette of the room. Obviously, the furniture was neutral. And I thought, wow, could that be its own kind of statement, its own kind of sculpture? And that became this kind of fun project. So I started to edit the majority of my collection to fit into that room.
1: Well, it's marvelous. It works beautifully. So let's talk a little bit about your history. You went to Iowa State University. You were the first recipient of the Helen Beresford Scholarship. Did you also grow up in Iowa?
0: I grew up in a town of 400 people in rural Illinois. Wow. My high school had 400 people
1: in my graduating
0: class. My high school graduating class uh, included 16 people. So
1: everybody knew everybody.
0: Everybody knew everybody. So
1: did you want to be a designer back then? What were your aspirations?
0: I always loved to draw, and I started drawing Peanuts characters for some reason. Mm. I love writing. I love drawing typography. And one of my earliest jobs in this little town, making myself useful and making money, was actually sign painting. So I would actually design all kinds of letter forms and paint them on the sides of truck doors or on the windows of some of the small shops. And I became known as this Artistic person, obviously, who was going to school at the high school, we were small enough that we actually didn't even have an art class. So I was sent one day each week to a local school where I was allowed to take architectural drafting classes, which is the closest version of art that they could find for me. And at that time, I thought, well, maybe I need to be an architect because that was the closest kind of expression of it. I was also inspired by Mike Brady. I watched the Brady Bunch and thought, wow, he has this wonderful house, this great family. It seems like a very um, wise sort of uh, vocation. So I will begin to study that. I came to find, though, that in the early phases of architecture, there was so much that had to do with the non-design part of it. It was all of the engineering, all the details. And for me, it really didn't fuel that sense of imagination and wonder in the way that typography and the idea of drawing and design did. So one of the turning points happened at Iowa State University, actually, before I attended the school. I took a calligraphy class when I was in junior high that my great aunt had found for me. And that's where I discovered a real love of letter forms. And that's how I actually discovered this one scholarship that I applied for.
1: Wow. Steve Jobs started his career with a calligraphy class as well. During your third year of college, you worked as an intern at the Duffy Design Group, which was then part of Fallon McElligot in Minneapolis. How did you first get the job with Joe?
0: I came to know a designer working in Minneapolis who had actually graduated from Iowa State. And he was friends with Charles Anderson, who was working with Joe. Wonderful. And at the time, obviously, the Duffy Design Group was the most influential design firm in the country. Yes. Every award, every new development, where the design direction was going, was coming out of Minneapolis. And like most designers at the time, I was just in love with the work and fascinated by just the enormous output, but also the consistency and the creativity that they were able to generate. So I knew that one of the things that was part of my study was an internship. So I set out to figure out a way to get an internship at the Duffy Design Group. So through this relationship, who knew Charles, I found out that they actually had one position that was open for one intern. So I cobbled together the work that I had been doing at Iowa State, nervously drove my car up to Minneapolis, And met with Joe Duffy and Sharon Werner and was just blown away by that environment, by him, and just the level of calm and just the openness that he had to what was the environment that he created. It was really unique when you walked in there. You could tell that it was something very special.
1: There must have been something really persuasive about your outreach to get a formal meeting with Joe himself and Sharon.
0: I don't know how it happened other than the fact that so many of the things that happen in life are based on relationships and also chance encounters. And for me, it was a combination of those two that led to that moment. And I remember sharing the work that I had done with them. Many of it, uh, when I look back now, was a real homage to a lot of the work that they were doing. And it was an effort on my part to show them that I understood their aesthetic and I can work within that, but also bring hopefully something of myself to the work. And I remember walking out and getting a call about an hour later being told I got the job. You must have been euphoric. I was, I didn't even know what to think. I thought, this can't be happening to me to get this role at a company that is this significant that I love so much.
1: Did you have a sense at that point that you will also were intrigued or fascinated or interested in branding, or was it just design?
0: Well, one of the things that I credit Joe for in that moment in my life is, from the very beginning, I started to think about design on a bigger stage. And I think that later in life, in my role at Target, it's similar. And in the context of the Duffy work and that time— Our clients were essentially the clients of Fallon McElligot. So they were advertising clients. They were clients with pretty large marketing budgets. And we were allowed to do a lot of branding work for them in partnership with Fallon. So from the very beginning, I had always seen design in the context of strategic work and the idea of a branding effort. It wasn't necessarily defined by something that would be viewed as a traditional designer output. It was immediately seen as this kind of larger statement that existed in terms of a larger kind of marketing program or campaign.
1: What was the biggest or most important thing you learned from Joe? You ended up working for him after the internship. You got a job and you stayed there for a couple more years. You were ultimately promoted to senior art director.
0: Yes. One of the things that I learned from him, and I talk about it a lot today in terms of leadership, is he created an environment where great work happened. And to be in a position, and this is something that I also learned from Dan Wyden, which is if you're able to create this context where people can find their voice and be represented and respected in a way to pursue that voice, the level of love and loyalty that you get from that is unmatched. And Joe was particularly good at making it not about him. He was really kind and very compassionate about what did designers need to do great work, and was an incredible supporter of bold ideas when you look at it now and think, wow, I don't know if I would have had the courage to do the things that he did.
1: You then went on to become the executive art director at Bloomingdale's. That's quite a shift Uh, You're going client-side. You're working in retail. You directed teams there in retail and packaging, identity. Did you also work with John Jay when you were there? It seems as if you might have overlapped by one year, if my calculations are correct.
0: So John and Pat Fallon were very good friends. Aha!
1: That's the connection. Yes. Okay.
0: And John hired me to be the head of art and design at Bloomingdale's. I moved to New York from Minneapolis, and... Worked with him for just over a year, actually, and learned another kind of great series of lessons in terms of work ethic, commitment, the idea of vision. One of the things that John always talked about was being given a matchbook and then being able to make a movie out of it. Really? How how do you do that? He was just a remarkable thinker in terms of being able to maximize opportunity, being able to look at. A specific project and think about what is the biggest thing that we can do from this idea how can we make the idea bigger how can we bring in culture to the work and he was just a relentless connector as well in terms of bringing great talent together and again being hands-off in the sense that if you have wonderful people who are working at a high level and they're brought together with an incredible opportunity usually amazing things are going to result.
1: You must have enjoyed your time at Bloomingdale's.
0: It was a crash course in retail. So it was a lot of long hours. It was a lot of work in terms of the pace of retail was different from um, the world from Joe Duffy, where the timelines that we were working on were much more kind of planned out. In retail, you're judged every day. And you're always preparing for how tomorrow can be better and how you can do it faster and how you can improve and learn. So it was a good training ground for me that I now um, can work back on and relate to now that I'm at Target.
1: John left and went to Wyden & Kennedy. Yes. And then he called you a couple of years into your gig at Bloomingdale's and suggested you come to Portland, Oregon?
0: Well, the way the story worked was John left, went to Wyden & Kennedy, and At that time, I had been working straight out from the Duffy Group into New York, and it was a pretty relentless pace. And at that point after him leaving, I decided that I would actually leave Bloomingdale's and take a year off and live in New York, go to see museums, just take in all of the gifts that the city offers, because when you're working at that pace, especially early in your career, you put everything into the role. Four days into my year off... (laughs) 1030 at night, the phone rings, and it's John. And he said, Todd, you have to come out here. Can you get on a plane tonight? Can you come tomorrow morning? I have this amazing project that I think you would just be perfect for. I get on a plane the next day. Not that night? No. It was 1030. It's red eye. I fly to Portland, Oregon, a place I'd never visited, and... He puts me to work.
1: What was the job?
0: And the first project that I worked on was designing OK Soda.
1: Oh, OK. Which at the
0: time <laughs> it was very was controversial. This really kind of radical idea where you have this multinational company wanting to create a soft drink brand for Gen X. And the name had been crafted already when I arrived. But my job was to develop the identity. And what would the packaging look like? What would the brand essentially look like? And to this day, it was one of the favorite projects that I've ever done in my career. We pushed everything. And to think in 1994, we'd created a series of packages that at the time were really kind of remarkable in the sense that we launched the brand with eight different can designs. We had a television chain letter. We had a hotline, which is 1-800-I-feel-okay. We really just push the limits so ahead of every of its medium time. Absolutely. in a really subversive way, in a really playful way. And when I look back now, it's pretty incredible to see that the level of interest that it still garners on the Internet is something that makes me proud.
1: I read that you were drawn to the agency's restlessness with titles and boundaries and having visited Wyden and Kennedy on a joint project that I did with them several years ago. I was overwhelmed by the culture there. Can you talk about that
0: experience? The effect that working at White and Kennedy had on me was incredibly deep. And when you talk about the culture, it isn't possible to understand it until you actually walk into one of their offices. It's
1: palpable. It's in the air.
0: It absolutely is. And... It is the direct result of Dan's tenacity in relation to creating an environment where people really do find their voice and continuing to organize the company in a way that it's always managed by, driven by, and fed by creative people.
1: There's not an accountant running that company. And
0: he was very conscious in all of the offices, I I believe to this day that is still true, which is... There is one account leader and there are two creative director leaders. And it was intentional that every decision that was made in terms of the business, in terms of the work, allowed the creative people to outvote the account person.
1: Wow.
0: If there was a moment where there was a divided point of view, he really wanted to make sure that the voice that creative people had would be the voice that is heard, and is supported.
1: What were some of your favorite projects? I know you worked with Nike, you work with Microsoft, you worked with Coca-Cola. I mean, you had the most extraordinary client list, and you ended up being the co-creative director of the agency, right?
0: Yes, in New York City. Did
1: you spend half your time in Oregon and half the time in New York City?
0: So I worked at Wieden & Kennedy in Portland for seven years, um, having moved out from New York, and... After seven years, Dan had said, would you move to New York and help run that office?
1: You worked with Michael Jordan. Talk about that.
0: Michael's brand was something that I look back on with a great deal of uh, admiration. He is an incredible businessman. And one of the quotes that I always go back to, which is, the best artists are businessmen and the best businessmen are artists. Did did Mick Jagger say that? I don't (laughs) know who said that. It's great. But he really is an amazing individual in terms of what he's done in terms of discipline, what he's done to define a role in sports and popular culture that definitely gives him a kind of iconic status that is yet to be surpassed.
1: One project that really intrigued me was a project that I believe was called the Summer Hoops Project, and the idea you came up with originated from the knowledge you had of Jordan's contract. Apparently, he had a clause in his contract which allowed him time during the summer to actually go back onto the courts and play and practice his game in order to get back to what he referred to as the truth and essence of the game. So how did that influence your idea?
0: So one of the things that we needed to do around that period of time during the summer was inspire a group of kids to work on their game because that's essentially what Michael Jordan did during that period was it allowed him to go back to the fundamentals and really push himself and by being outside, get back to the essence of what it meant to really play ball. And if you walk by the cage here on West 4th, you have that sense every day. And there's just something about it that cannot be replicated. It's beautiful. When you're inside. And what we wanted to do was bring a level of engagement and attention around those courts. But one of the things that we observed when we looked at those courts where those kids played was that they weren't really courts that were prepared for the right kind of play, meaning that those rims actually didn't have nets. They were not sort of kept up. And one of the things we thought was, who are we to invite kids to actually work on their game outside when the state of the court isn't something thats is been maintained? And what we thought of was, let's lead with a level of generosity. So let's actually spend time and create these custom versions of basketball nets. And let's go to all these courts in five major cities, and let's literally just put these courts back into shape. And one of the things that we did to define it to really send a signal was to create these beautiful custom bright nets and put them on all of the rims. And it just so happened that the color combination of each of the nets mirrored the color combination of the training shoes that we were actually promoting at that time. So it was a really interesting way, not only to gain the attention of the audience, give them something first, but also engage them in a way that felt I think, much more genuine. And it felt much more empathetic to the idea of what it meant to connect with that audience.
1: What was it like working with Dan Wyden? Is it true he's a bit of a
0: recluse? I think that Dan is one of the the most interesting and generous people that I've ever met. And I, I should say it in the sense that he, like Joe, really understood that If you create an environment and allow people to pursue their own passion, their own dream, that the level of output that you'll get will be remarkable. And he has a way of walking in and surveying a situation and really bringing us all back to the truth. Like, what is the human truth of what this is about? And the best work that we were able to create during that time, and I think they still create is that you're able to tap into something that everybody feels, that everybody thinks, but few people have the courage to say. And Dan had always created a way for that to be possible.
1: What a remarkable thing to be able to witness. But in June of 2010, after 16 years at Wyden & Kennedy, you left to start your own consultancy. Why?
0: After the 15th year, I looked back and thought, I have what I believe to be the best job in advertising. I work an incredible agency. I live in New York City. I have a great apartment. I have a great apartment. (laughs) (laughs) And when you do that work with the level of expectation and intensity that we do, and I think that we're always pushing ourselves to make the work better, to work in smarter ways, to work in better ways on behalf of our clients, for their brands, for their businesses. When you've done it for so many years, it feels like you need to actually develop new muscles in new ways. And it really was this feeling of now's the time to leave home. It's so
1: courageous. I can't imagine doing something like that.
0: It took a while to really get ready for that. And when that happened, I really just stepped into a different direction, which was thinking about how I could more directly impact the development and the deployment of work. And what that meant was I was connected to Mr. Yanai, who is the chairman of Fast Retailing, who owns Uniqlo, and a former Wyden uh, colleague of mine. And I began to work together on a project to help launch Uniqlo in New York City. And launch you
1: did. You helped launch two of the brand stores what was that like? How do you go about launching an event like Uniqlo?
0: Well, we started with their tagline, which is made for all. And what we needed to do was make people aware of the brand. So below 14th Street, most people had heard of Uniqlo, but above where we're opening the stores on 5th Avenue and 53rd and 34th between 5th and 6th, that group of people in Manhattan weren't as aware of the brand, what the value proposition was, what its stance was in terms of creativity and culture. So one of the things we needed to do was introduce the brand to New York City and do it through this line of made-for-all, which for us was this incredible idea that allowed us to create wonderful partnerships, one of which was the relationship between Uniqlo and the High Line, Because at the time, the Highline for me was one great articulation of made for all, which is how do you create something that feels generous and democratic that is available to the largest number of people? And that was one of the things that Uniqlo had really stood for, which is this idea of bringing better quality products to more people, constantly pushing themselves to improve the way it was made and giving people access to better things. So the effort on our part was let's partner with other people in New York City who exemplify that similar ethos. And let's begin to build an authentic relationship between people who are really doing that. And one of the the best ways for us to do that was to partner with the High Line. And we created these wonderful Uniqlo cubes that were glowing. And we created an effort that you know, in my mind, was one of the most fun things I've actually done, which is to create a roller skating rink in Manhattan, which at the time was the only one that was there, and just make it free for people to play and to be part of that experience, which has become such an incredible magnet in New York, which is the High Line, and really begin to build that association through Presence.
1: It seems that our relationship with brands has fundamentally changed and it's no longer about being entertained by an ad or intrigued or compelled or moved by an ad. It really seems to be much more immersive where you're actually expected to provide a deep, meaningful exchange. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how or why you've seen that happen.
0: Well, one of the things that's changed everything has been technology. And based on the fact that we walk around with these devices that are the remote control of our lives, at least currently, what's possible now with these devices is what I can see, what I can share, what I can buy, what I can find, how I can connect. It's endless. So one of the things I often start with is thinking about that as the context. And if this idea of choice being infinite, is really this realization that what is the one thing that's scarce? And I would say it's attention. So if you're thinking about the context of engaging an audience, one of the first things that you have to start with is how do you begin to earn their attention? And the way that we talk about it, the way I believe deeply in, is that that starts with respect and relevance. So it's getting very close to who is your audience and what is their current relationship with the company. And when you understand that, then you begin to understand the word brand, because people talk about the word brand in many different ways. Sometimes it's a noun. Sometimes it's a verb. Sometimes it's a floor in a building. Sometimes <laughs> it's a line item in someone's P&L. Sometimes it's a person. <laughs> exactly. What I often think about and the way I talk about it with my teams is a brand is the connection that exists between a company's belief and its behavior. That lives in the mind and the head and the heart of consumers. And while people feel comfortable with the fact that they have a set of beliefs and they communicate them, it's not enough to just let people know what you stand for. Like life, you actually only get credit for what you do, not what you say. So it's important to understand what is the state of the relationship between that audience and that company, and how do you begin to build a respectful and relevant relationship over time? So that's a very different level of engagement, and it is moving from this pure idea of transaction to interaction.
1: This is probably best seen in the work you're currently doing now as the chief creative officer of Target. In 2013, you joined Target, and you joined at a somewhat difficult time. Um, There were a number of issues that seemed to be impacting the company. The largest was probably the security breach
0: of consumers' credit cards. Um, What was that like for you? That really was a turning point for the company in many respects. And when I think about it in terms of the brand it really was an issue that we needed to take a long, hard look at because it did change the way that people thought about the company. And it was something that affected people, you know, in an emotional way, in a very kind of direct way. And we needed to be respectful of that. We needed to be mindful of what does that mean in terms of the loyalty to us. And what does it say about a very large company in terms of it being, at the time, the largest in history in the way that it had been reported because of the way that it was covered through the media. So there were many questions that we had in terms of what is the path forward as it relates to what we stand for and how do we move past this in a way that is right? And one of the things that we did that I'm very proud of is that we positioned ourselves as a leader and a supporter of chip-and-pin technology, so using it as a moment to say, okay, let's really think about where is this going and let's make sure that we're in support of and really proactive in, in supporting this type of technology that introduces a level of enhanced security for everyone
1: In your role now, you're establishing the creative direction of Target's marketing efforts, leading an internal team of art directors and designers and developers and writers and producers. You're also managing all the external agency and design partners. What is a typical day in the life of Todd Waterbury like?
0: (laughs) Well, it depends on what season of the year. Okay. So it usually means... Uh, depending on what time of the year it is, if you wind the, uh, the calendar back almost a year, it's, okay, what are we preparing for that will actually show up in the store, on our Instagram feed, on televisions uh, for that season? So right now, we are working on holiday, and we are working on back to school, and we are working on back to college. They're, so you're living in the future. Yeah, we're always living in the future,
1: And so are you active in all of those elements equally, the advertising, the brand content, Instagram, or are there personal favorites that you spend a little bit more time in because you have that much more attachment to them?
0: I have a soft spot for this intersection actually between physical, digital, and social. And one of the things that we put out into the world last year that I'm really excited by and building on is this idea of Target Two, so I was able to take some of my favorite things that we sell at Target and use a kind of artful perspective and massing them in interesting ways. We built an app that allowed people to play with each one of these pieces, these sculptures that we had made. We actually uh, launched it quietly in our space in Chelsea, and what I was interested to see is what would happen if people just walk by, they're on a Saturday afternoon gallery visit and they happen into the space and they see these products that we make and they're masked in these interesting ways, what would people do with it? What Was would this the say? Acrylic House? Uh, that's Open House in San Francisco. That's okay. separate. That's another that's project. That's
1: amazing. That is amazing. So it seems as if you are really creating installations and surprise art experiences for people that then inspire them to think about the Target brand? Is that correct?
0: I am always thinking about where that connection lies in terms of our company, our products, and our guests, and thinking about new ways to imagine what a retail experience can be. So in addition to Target 2 in Chelsea and at Art Basel, in addition to Open House in San Francisco, uh, this December we actually created something called Wonderland, and that was in Chelsea here as well. And it was just this terrific combination of um, Willy Wonka meets Dr. Seuss meets Santa Claus, and how do we enable this kind of fantastical, joyful holiday experience and use technology in ways to make the experience seamless, but at the same time bring a level of wonder and joy to kids and families and learn from it, learn how people interact with one another, how they interact with the products that we sell when we've taken this kind of childlike look at what they can be.
1: The last thing I want to talk to you about is the extraordinary partnership you created with Vogue last year for the Germinal September issue. You reimagined 15 iconic Vogue images through a target lens. So can you describe for our listeners what you did?
0: One of the things that we were in love with was this idea of how do we partner with Vogue and Condé Nast during a time that is so important to fashion. So the launch of the September issue really is this kind of seminal moment in fashion. And we thought about an idea that could only be done in vogue and we wanted to do it in a way that really exemplified our kind of democratic spirit as a brand. So the thought was could we take some of the classic images for which they're known and reimagine them in this kind of artful surprising way and connect people directly from the pages in vogue with a partnership with Shazam and their image recognition technology to not only give people a glimpse at the original image that we were inspired by, not only show them behind-the-scenes content of the shoot itself, but connect them directly with the products that we sell at Target.com.
1: And so everything for the photographs was created. These iconic photographs were recreated using everything that you could get at Target. Yes. How did you pick the images through this centuries-long relationship that Vogue has had with photographers? How were you able to pick 20?
0: Well, we were, first of all, so grateful to actually have this partnership with Condé Nast and be invited into the archives to even witness some of these images that very few people get to see the originals of. And it was an editing process between the team and really what we wanted to stand for in terms of what are some of the key products that we think are important to talk about during fall. So it was a combination of imagery conversation with Conde Nast which ones felt like they span the largest range of time that Vogue has been publishing so i think the the earliest image that we had dated back to 1918
1: it's an extraordinary experience there was quite a lot of commentary on the internet as you can well imagine about it i think one of my favorite comments was um, somebody who said, forget the rest of the issue. All you need to do is look at that 20-page insert. So congratulations on not only this wonderful, wonderful issue, but also, Todd, really creating some of the most interesting, intelligent work over the last couple of decades. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters today.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you, Debbie. You can
1: follow Todd Waterbury on Twitter. His handle is at Todd Watbury. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman and I look forward to talking with you again soon.